This season of The Ready State is sponsored by Uller, makers of the chili pad. If you don't know what this is, imagine a young Kelly Starrett sleep in his bed in the mountains of Bavaria as a child in the Alps. And Juliet Juliet is, stop it, stop it. It's true. I grew up when it was super cold and I had a 50-pound duvet on me and I slept like I was a small child. And then my whole life I've been seeking that same sleep. I didn't find it again until I got a chili pad. The chili pad really has changed Kelly's life, and I believe it helps him fall asleep faster and sleep more deeply and recover better, and perhaps most importantly, not sweat as much while he's sleeping. Oh, my God. So, you know, we basically live in two worlds. Juliet lives in the desert and sleeps in the desert, puts on a hat, like a warm towel from the dryer, and then just is as uncomfortable. And then my side of the bed... The, the Uller s- circulates cold water underneath my sheet. And, and you can adjust the temperature to you. I have gotten myself down where I get it as cold as possible. I get into an ice-cold bed. It stays cold. I don't wake up hot. And it makes a huge difference. And the reason I know is I travel a ton. And when I am not on my chili pad... He's it, really sad. Dude, dude, it's so sad. This thing is so rad that I ended up calling up uh, Todd at Chili Pad. And I was like, dude... You have to send one to all my friends. And I started whipping these things in the mail to people like uh, Rogan. I sent one to Tim Ferriss. I sent one to, I mean, I have, I, I gave one to Drew Brees. And the reason is because I was like, this, nothing has ever changed my life, the sleep in my life, the quality of sleep in my life like this thing did. If you also want to change your life and sleep better like Kelly Starrett and all of his friends, head over to Chili, that's C-H-I-L-I, technology.com slash TRS, and you can learn more and get a discount on your own chili pad. Hey, everyone. I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it. You better stop So I feel like it was a, about a million years ago that I discovered this incredible resource on the web, and it would turn out to be a popular health blog about all things nutrition, performance, movement. It's called Mark's Daily Apple, and I gotta say, I'm pretty sure this thing predated the uh, the video feature of the iPhone. It was sort of new, YouTube was a nascent uh, experiment, um, and ultimately, it was Mark Sisson who had founded this beast. It, it's not a, a a stretch to say he's the godfather of the primal food and lifestyle movement. It turns out he became a New York Times bestselling author of the Keto Reset Diet. He's also written a ton of other books, including The Primal Blueprint, which which really was credited for turbocharging the growth of the primal paleo movement all the way back in 2009. If you can believe it or not, people were eating gluten-free in 2009, starting to think about fats differently. After spending about three decades researching educating folks on why they key component to achieving and maintaining optimal wellness, Mark launched Primal Kitchen, a real food company that created primal paleo keto and whole 30 friendly kitchen staples. Mark has been holding the door open for us for, for as long as I can think. And I am so thrilled to introduce him on this episode of the Ready State Podcast. Mark Sisson, such a pleasure to have you on the Ready State Podcast. Thanks so much, friend. It is my pleasure to be here with you. We're so happy to have you, Mark. I'll just go ahead and get started. Before, uh, back in the day, before you even started Mark's Daily Apple, you were an elite level runner that qualified for the Olympic trials. Can you give us a little backstory of your running career and 
and then also sort of how you pivoted into nutrition and, from and that. Let me just jump in and say, and cut Mark off, and just say this is important to understand because it gives you such context and such vision about having been a perfect product of the system to your thinking now. That's why yeah. it's in the yeah, podcast. That's everybody. why we're curious about this. Well, no, and that's very important because as, as you hear the story, you'll, you'll understand why all of this stuff got solidified in my brain and it, and it became a passion for me. So I was uh, a geeky kid. I was in my early teens and I was reading books about um, longevity for some bizarre reason. My mother I think, was into that. And, and um, so I was reading Adele Davis and all these, you know, all the books that talked about how you could live longer lives. And one of the things that came across my, um, my, my, reading schedule was Ken Cooper's book uh, on aerobics. Um, prior to that, I had been um, recognized as a, a scrawny kid, grew up in a small fishing village in Maine where, you know, the, the tough guys played soccer and hockey and, and football and baseball and basketball. And I was like just too scrawny and weak for, for those. Literally, it's, it's like, you know, the back of a, of a, of a comic book ad. But um, I lived a mile and a half from school and, and I found myself just – um, out of um, not necessity, but but wanting to beat the bus home, I would jog the mile and a half each way to school. So I'd I'd jog to school in the morning, jog home home from school in the afternoon. So a total of three miles in a day, um, but five days a week. And I started to get reasonably fit, and I started to think in terms of um, you know maybe one of the things I could do as an athlete is I could go out for the track team. Um, I, Lord knows I got the crap beat out of me in PE class by all the seniors in my class who would, you know, drop down and give them 20 push-ups and purple nurples and being rat, rat tail whipped with a towel and all that stuff. So spring track rolls around and, and I go out for the, for the team and I, and I wind up competing in the mile, the two mile, and of all things, the pole vault. And in several events, I won all three of those, several of the, of the meets, I won all three of those events. Yeah, that's that's just like winning the shot put and the mile. That's just crazy. I know. So I got I got some great credibility there uh, as as an endurance athlete, and that kind of put me on this path of learning, wanting to learn more about performance and how I could improve my running and how I could improve uh, my stamina. And so the books on longevity kind of gave way to the books on running and the books on diet and uh, and nutrition, which was sort of required to all those miles. So back to Cooper's book, which came out in 1968, the book was called Aerobics, and it sort of changed the way um, the fitness community and the medical community looked at health and longevity because it, it pinpointed cardiovascular health as the key to um, living a long life and being healthy. Uh, it was as if running and swimming and cycling conferred some, some magical longevity power and prowess to anyone who, who undertook it. Well, that made sense to me. And in fact, Cooper said, you know, you, he would award you points for, for as many miles as you ran during the week. And the more points you had, theoretically, the longer you would live and the healthier you would be. Yeah, what could go wrong with that? And I like accumulating points. So I started <laughs> racking up a whole, a whole ton of points. And I started doing a lot, a lot of miles. Um, and at the same time, I was reading books on, on, on nutrition. And the conventional wisdom of the day was suggesting that a complex carbohydrate-based diet um, was the way to, to fuel all these miles because it was assumed that the body really worked on glucose and fat was sort of a, a luxury fuel that you only tapped into once in a while, but glucose management was the real essence of, of what you were trying to achieve here and becoming an elite athlete. 
lots of books were written about how you would carbo load and when you would carbo load. And so, you know, me and I and my contemporaries consumed copious amounts of carbs for years and years and years. And I'm talking about maybe 700 to a thousand grams a day, almost minimum. That's my cookie, cookie dream. That's a lot lot of, uh, you know, bread and pasta and cereal and rice and beer and, you know, uh, all the things that qualify as carbs, uh, not necessarily complex carbs. Lo and behold, after a bunch of years, I was became uh, captain of the track team um, at prep school, and then I went to college and was captain of the cross country and track team there, and uh, had some great seasons. And found that the longer the distance that I was racing, the better I was relative to the rest of the crowd. And so I found myself doing marathons. Um, was going to be a doctor and went to. Uh, you know, I, I was a pre-med candidate in college and I, I um, was dead set on becoming a physician, but I decided to take three years off after I graduated from college and, and, and just pursue this running career uh, and, and maximize my, my um, fitness and see what I could do to uh, make the Olympic team for the 1980 uh, Olympic team, which was an ill-fated team because that was the year that Jimmy Carter, you know, he, he just boycotted the Olympics on behalf of the United States. So there was no team. Anyway, so I took three years and I really pressed hard on my running and I got faster and faster. I finished fifth in the U.S. National Championships in 1980. Uh, Later on, went on to uh, finish fourth at Ironman in Hawaii. So I was a a, a reasonably decent endurance athlete, made the cover of Runner's World three times. But while I was racing well and had good times and was, I looked pretty fit on the outside. I was, I was literally falling apart on the inside. I was uh, I was developing osteoarthritis in my feet, which was really putting, putting a, um, um, you know, a, a cramp in my style, literally and figuratively. Um, I was, uh, I had uh, tendonitis in my hips, hip flexors notoriously shortened up for, for runners, as you know. And um, I had irritable bowel syndrome that ran my life. I mean, I, I literally... Uh, Every day I would have to figure out where the nearest bathroom was and I couldn't be more than 10 minutes away from it. That was that, it was that bad. It was horrible. Let me just say that I, I feel like you're describing how a lot of us in our, as we have gone through the sort of apex of being 19 or 20 or 25 and be able to do whatever we want, you're describing how a lot of us feel. Yeah, I mean, and it goes, and it, it goes deeper and deeper. I mean, I had, I had a horrible acne. I had gastroesophageal reflux. I had you know, heartburn. I would get um, um, upper respiratory tract infections five, six times a year. It seemed like they never went away. Um, I had hemorrhoids. It was it was literally this bizarre kind of thing where where I, again on the outside I looked pretty fit and my race numbers would show that I was doing pretty well. But I was literally dying and, and I hated I, I hated how I felt. I hated the fact that I would wake up every morning with with horrible cramps and I'd have to go to the bathroom immediately. Um, and, uh, at the age of like 29, I finally just said, you know, this is enough of the competing. It's just, uh, first of all, that there was no money to be made in, in elite endurance activities in those days. And that was a little bit ridiculous. And second, I was just kind of over this struggling and suffering and all the stuff that I was going through, which was bizarre because ironically in the, in the, in the initial phase, I was pursuing longevity and health and feeling good, you know, and all the things that I, that I read about that. I thought I was, I was headed toward with this on this path. So I retired uh, in 82 from all competition, 
I decided that I was going to dedicate my life to figuring out ways in which I could be strong and lean and fit and healthy and happy and productive with the least amount of pain, suffering, sacrifice, discipline, calorie counting, portion control, and all the other negative stuff. So I started um, doing research. I wrote some of the first books I wrote were on training because I knew training very well. So I wrote the Runner's World Triathlon Training Book in 1981. It published in 1982. Um, I wrote a couple of books on uh, on uh, one called the, the, the Lean Routine, the Ultimate Lean Routine. One was, uh, I forget even some of the name of these books. It was uh, some fat loss books and things like that that really got me headed down a, a path of looking at um, evolution, which has been my favorite subject in school as a bio major, uh, and then this emerging science uh, of genetics. And it was starting to be come clear that a lot of things that were happening whenever you did a study or a research study or a biological study were happening at the level of uh, gene expression. And uh, so I started, I, I really glommed onto that pretty quickly and realized that so much of what we do and who we are is a, is a result of this gene expression. Genes aren't just, you know, created uh, when we're born and kind of determine, you know, who, who we're going to be. And then at the end of the day, um, you know, we're, we're fated to execute uh, on, this, uh, on this genome that we're given. Genes are in fact working every second of every day. They're rebuilding, renewing, regenerating, recreating us um, minute by minute based on inputs that we give these genes. And these inputs can be the food we eat, the types of exercise we choose to do, the amount of sleep we get, the amount of sun exposure we get, the amount of play we engage in, how often we use our brains the kind of thoughts that we think can even have a manifestation on how genes express themselves. So it was a really exciting time for me to, to embrace this idea that we could, that we had this immense control over manifesting a strong, lean, fit, happy, healthy body. If we wanted to, we just had to find out what these hidden genetic secrets were. And so that's, be, that became the, the impetus and strategy behind my looking at uh, the clues to be derived from evolution. Uh, because, you know, I was aware that we're humans that have evolved over the last two and a half million years as humans, and then a hundred million years prior to that as mammals. Uh, and so a lot of this genetic recipe that we all possess today was forged in an environment of uh, harsh conditions, lots of running, lots of jumping, uh, going to bed when the sun goes down, waking up when the sun comes up, lots of things that we sort of forgotten about in our modern lives um, and, and these behaviors could inform us in a way in which we could use them as, as a template to achieve the, you know, the strong, healthy bodies that we, that we pretty much all seek. So I started writing about this um, on Mark's Daily Apple, this silly little blog that I created in 2006. It was not silly. It was rad. It still is rad. <laughs> And I, you know, I had this idea that I would write something every day for a year. And at the end of a year, I, I would have written everything there was to write about these topics that I was interested in. And then I would go about my merry way. Well, at the end of a year, what happened was I got such engagement from my readers and so many questions and so many people saying, I think you're onto something here, but what about this? And what about that? And have you thought about, you know, this tangent? Um, and so the, you know, the subject matter has just expanded um, exponentially since since then, and we're having a blast putting together, you know, kind of unique uh, articles on things that people hadn't really given that much thought to over the years, and trying to trying to 
coalesce into a, into a life way that, again, that serves as a template. I'm not saying I have the way or the right way. I have a way that is really well researched and works for a lot of people. Now it's, you know, it's millions of user experiences now. In full transparency, I discovered Mark's Daily Apple when I was a first-year physio. The same time I discovered Mark Ripito, the same time I discovered CrossFit and Dan John. And for me, it was just this happy, I mean, chance to sort of begin to finally understand sort of this integrative approach of, hey, we need to train a little bit differently. And then all of a sudden, you were really, and honestly, the first person who put onto my uh, radar that all of these other components, which were sort of kind of sidelined or not, or, or, or soft or less sexy to the 26 year old were really important. And I, I mean, I just, I, I owe so much of the foundation of my thinking to Mark's Daily Apple. I can't even tell you. Well, thank you. And I, you're right. A, a lot of people sort of want or hope that, that if they fix the diet, everything will be better. And um, you know, it's not, that's definitely a huge part of it, but uh, there are a lot of people who have fixed their diets and done a great job fixing their diets and still have big issues with mobility. That's, you know, obviously we can talk about that or with sleep or with stress management or with, you know, little, little nuances that they assume would go away once they got their diet right. Um, it's a, it's a, it's an ongoing project being a human being and it never ends. And there's always, there's always new territory to explore and I think new ways to improve if self-improvement is, is, is one of your goals. So your uh, talk about evolution and genetics reminded me that I wanted to tell you a story that I thought you'd find uh, interesting about our cat named King Louis. And uh, speaking of mammals, uh, it turns out that Kelly and I gave our cat diabetes. Um, he was diagnosed last year with diabetes, and it wasn't until after he was diagnosed we realized that cats are obligate carnivores, meaning they only eat meat. Oh, and you were feeding, feeding your cat like Impossible Burgers? Well, we were feeding our cat, exactly. We were Basically feeding our cat, thing. obviously, uh, a bunch of not meat, and we gave our cat diabetes, and then go figure, we put him on a completely meat diet for six months, and his diabetes was 100% cured. And uh, I, I don't know, just something about your 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 mention of evolution and genetics reminded me of how Kevin and imagine and Ju Ju and I look at each other and we're like, what else are we doing? What other diseases are we giving each other? <laughs> We've poisoned our cat with cat food. Yeah, it's it's a crazy world that we live in, and, and one of the challenges is to uh, take a step back and recognize that we are basically, you know, animals that evolve the way every other animal evolved, and we just happen to have uh, become an apex predator through the use of our brain. But we're still, as as Art Devaney used to say, we're still apes in pinstripe suits. You know, we're still basically we ought to be beholden to those to to the to the rules of nature. One of which is, you know, eat stuff that your body evolved to consume and, and use best and, and try to avoid man, the man-made frankenfoods that so many of us assume are somehow made in our best interest for, for better health. You have been talking about playing and sun and being reasonable in all things. I mean, you were one of the, when, when the keto phase first hit and we taught, and it wasn't even called keto. People were just talking about being in ketosis. You made this statement that was just so profound and, and really, I think sort of typifies your really reasonable long game approach as you're like, Hey, the goal is not necessarily to be in ketosis. The goal is to have access to ketones and to be metabolically flexible. So you've talked about metabolic flexibility before. What does that mean? 
So metabolic flexibility basically describes a condition or a situation where the body is just able to extract energy from whatever substrate is available uh, at the time, um, almost regardless of the workload. For example, um, to be metabolically flexible means to be able to burn fat off your plate of food um, or off your thighs or butt or belly that, where you've stored it. Being able to burn uh, carbohydrate uh, from the plate of food, the, you know, the potatoes or the rice or pasta or whatever is on your plate of food, or from being able to burn the glycogen in your muscles, the glucose in your bloodstream, or the ketones that your liver makes, uh, or the, um, sometimes the amino acids that, uh, that are broken down as a result of cortisol. But being metabolically flexible uh, pretty much describes this uh, state in which you've, you've built the metabolic machinery to be able to use whatever substrate is handy. And the problem is most of us don't get to the point of, uh, of building the metabolic machinery. We, we become so carbohydrate dependent over a lifetime uh, that the body just expects that we're going to refuel it every two or three hours with more carbs, whether it's uh, orange juice, toast uh, for breakfast or oatmeal, if you're trying to be steel cut oats, if you're trying to be really healthy, um, you know, a bagel at 10 o'clock uh, as a, uh, as a snack, a whole wheat bagel, please. Um, you know, a sandwich at lunch, um, a, a bran muffin in the afternoon and a plate of spaghetti and whatever for dinner and then a snack before you go to bed. And that'll keep your blood sugar up. And as a result, you'll never develop metabolic flexibility because the body knows how to burn sugar without any of, the, of that machinery. Um, the basic machinery that we're looking to, to, to build up is, are the mitochondria. And so when you withhold carbohydrate and, you, and you, you tell the body, basically, you tell the brain that it's not going to be getting a lot of glucose over the next couple of hours or days or weeks, the body has this amazing fallback position. It says, that's fine. I know how to burn fat. I was born with a factory setting that allowed me to burn fat all the time. I just lost it because that part of my uh, metabolism atrophied, it literally atrophied. Uh, and so if we're going to start building met the metabolic machinery, there's a thing, a process known as mitochondrial biogenesis. And um, it's the upregulating of certain gene systems that will, that will improve, increase the number of mitochondria and improve the efficiency of those mitochondria that you already have. And that's where the fat burns. And so the more of these mitochondria you build and the more efficient they become, the more fat you can burn. The more fat you can burn, the less reliant you, you are on a regular source of fuel, whether it's carbohydrate, fat, or protein. You can literally go longer periods of time without eating, without getting hungry, without getting hangry, without getting cravings, because you're so good at burning this, this stored body fat you become so metabolically flexible that, that you are able to, again, go long periods of time with either burning fat in the muscles or, uh, and, and, and coincidentally at the same time, the, the brain learns how to use ketones, which are a byproduct of fat metabolism that come, come from the liver. And the brain uses ketones so efficiently that it offsets the brain's need to have glucose. And so you can go literally days without eating any carbohydrate. You go a lifetime without eating carbohydrate. You can go days without eating any food at all and, and become what is basically a closed loop where if you become metabolically flexible, your body burns the, bar, the body fat that you've stored. It sends some of the fat to the liver to become ketones so the brain can then function on the ketones. You don't need carbohydrate. 
whatever glucose the body, there are some cells in the body that require glucose, but the body has this elegant ability through a process called gluconeogenesis to make, to make the gluco, enough glucose for those, say, red blood cells and other certain, certain brain cells. Uh, and it become, you become literally a closed loop, so much so that people say, well if, I, well, if I go on a fast for five days, I'll lose like 20 pounds of muscle mass, won't I? And the answer is no, because one of the things that happens if you become metabolically flexible and metabolically efficient is, is the body shifts into this protein sparing state where it doesn't want to get rid of amino acids. And so it taps into these amino acid pools and these reservoirs that, are, that exist in the body. And so you don't lose muscle mass. You don't, you don't tear down muscle the way you would have in the old days if you were just a sugar burner and hadn't built the metabolic machinery to burn fat. It's a beautiful, elegant system. And, and that's why I, I want to really, uh, in one of my future books, I want to talk more about this concept of the closed loop. The fact that you could get by for five days without eating anything. And I could, I could do the math and show you, you know, you're going to need, you're going to burn, you know, hundred grams, maybe 150 grams worth of fat. Um, you're going to, um, you know, you produce, uh, 750 calories worth of ketones that your brain will use. Uh, and you'll make a little bit of glu glucose from the gluconeogenesis, some of which, by the way, comes from the glycerol that gets stripped off that, tri that triglyceride, that, that little fatty acid molecule. It, it's, it's, that's the real definition of efficiency. Some of this molecule is going to become combusted as fuel. Some of it's going to go become... Uh, ketones for your brain to use, and some of it's going to become the substrate to, to make a glucose molecule. It's so beautiful. It's so elegant. And I, I think people just don't understand how remarkable the human body is. You know, people get that we evolved this system of storing fat because it was a, an evolutionary adaptation to long periods of time without, without there being a, a source of food. But what confounds most people is, okay, I, I got the fat storage part. I get that. But how do I burn it, right? True fact. So um, what this whole conversation leads me to wonder is, and I imagine some of our listeners will wonder this, is first of all, how does one become more metabolically flexible? That's part A. And then are you of the mind that being in a metabolically flexible or efficient state helps with aging? Um, yes and yes. So uh, how you become metabolically flexible is by withholding a carbohydrate. So you withhold, you know, it, it's for a lot of people, it's sort of self-evident. If I don't eat um, sugars, sweetened beverages, uh, desserts, pies, cakes, candies, cookies, bread, pasta, cereal, rice, I'm cutting out all the carbs and I'm focusing on a whole food, real food diet that is basically meat, fish, fowl, eggs, nuts, seeds, uh, vegetables, and a little bit of fruit, you're basically going to be close to keto with that eating strategy. And that just happens to be the way we ate up until about 150 years ago, every one of us. So by withholding carbohydrates, the body gets the message that you're not going to be just uh, slamming down the sugary uh, products and, and raising blood sugar and blood glucose all the time. And the body, again, the body goes, hey, I can handle this. I know how to do it. Here's what we do. We upregulate those enzyme systems that take fat out of storage. We send them to the, to the, um, uh, to the mitochondria to, to combust, and we create this fuel system for the muscles. And over time, and it, it doesn't take a long time, I, I suggest that 75 to 80% of the results can be achieved in three to four weeks of a ketogenic-type eating strategy. 
Uh, and then once you've done that work and once you've built that metabolic machinery, the good news is you can kind of go back to adding back some, pat, some, some carbohydrates. So you don't have to be fully keto the whole time to derive the benefits of a keto lifestyle. You can, and that's, again, that's almost the definition of metabolic flexibility. One of my definitions is, okay, today I didn't eat, I felt great. Yesterday I had three giant meals, I felt great. Tomorrow I'm gonna have um, lunch and, and dinner and I'll probably eat 150 grams of carbs, I'll feel great. All of that is evidence of metabolic flexibility. Um, the ability to get up in the morning and go start your day and not have to be hangry and not have to have something to eat. The ability to go to, to, to the gym at like 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, do a hard workout and then come home and not have to eat, not have to do a post-workout meal. Evidence of metabolic flexibility. Once you've built this metabolic flexibility, again, then you can sort of be, be, ease off the, the pedal a, a little bit and just say, as long as I eat clean, wholesome foods, doesn't really matter how much I eat, um, doesn't matter when I eat, um, as long as I feel good and I'm, I've got the energy I want, I'm maintaining muscle mass, and I'm not getting sick. And most importantly, I'm not letting hunger run my life. Then, then what, what greater level of freedom is there than the freedom from food? You know, um, that's truly amazing. And I think really does get, get you. People are confused. Hey, uh, intermittent fasting starting to be, you know, we're not sure why we should be fasting, what the ultimate goal is. Um, one of the things that I think you, I even, you know, I had the benefit of being a presenter um, at PrimalCon is one of the things that, which is, was your sort of festival around trying to get people, you know, to, to be able to deep dive into these concepts. For those of you who've never heard of PrimalCon, um, is that, you know, you, you said always that, like, hey, it wasn't even necessarily like you, you could eat tons of vegetables, tons and tons of vegetables, and still kind of be in the 100 to 120 gram carbohydrate piece and still be considered very low carbohydrate enough you know you you never were saying you should not eat vegetables and fruits and you should only eat fat as sort of a sustainable piece once you become metabolically flexible there sometimes we are you know as we people hear this message sometimes we are concerned that or there maybe there's some data that women maybe need a little bit more carbohydrate than men but moderately more can you speak to that uh, well, first of all, agreed that, um, you know, one of the things we talk about with, with um, low-carb eating is that vegetables sort of are free. You can have as many vegetables as you want. And the, the asterisk at the end of that uh, statement is that, um, you know, you're, if you get your diet dialed in and if you be, when you become metabolically flexible, one of the things that happens is you realize, holy shit, I was eating way too much food. Like I was eating more food than I needed to. I was being – I was leaving – mealtime uncomfortable. And it's so funny, you, you, you recall that time at PrimalCon, um, Brad and I would sit in the back. You know, at PrimalCon, we fed all of our guests every meal, and we had this beautiful, sumptuous feast of primal food, you know, uh, grass-fed steaks and pastured chickens and, and, and heaps and heaps of broccoli and vegetables and stuff like that. And I would and I would stand back and I would watch people load their plates up and I'm gone. I'm, and I just, Brad and I would shake our heads and go, holy crap. I guess we haven't really quite, you know, gotten to the point yet where, where the message is fully, fully grokked. Because um, in my estimation, every single person at those, at those buffet lines was overeating. 
Um, and I don't know how they did it, but I think, you know, some of them, and, and they could get away with it. One of the great things about eating primally is that, you know, you, you, you tend not to gain weight. Um, you tend toward, you trend toward more, more toward an, uh, your ideal body composition, which is losing weight. Um, but it was, it was fascinating to see how much food uh, people ate. So when we talk about um, this idea of hunger, appetite, and cravings and getting a handle on that, it's, it's a, a really important nuance to the whole keto lifestyle, not just being in ketosis, but it's, it's really about um, finding that sweet spot where you eat enough to, to satisfy you. And, and again, one of the things I've said over the years is I don't put a bite of food in my mouth that doesn't taste awesome. Like every bite of food I eat, I want it to taste awesome. So I don't just, you know, eat a dry kale salad because kale is supposed to be good for me. Thank you. Thank you. The Marie Kondo of uh, of eating, you like, you know, it's, does it bring me joy? I think this is so reasonable. Uh, and it should be. It's one of the great pleasures. And I don't know why people um, somehow think that, like, I love, when I first read about um, Soylent, those guys up in your neck of the woods yes. that were making oh. the, the, uh, the powdered drink mix that you would, you know, would have everything that you would need and you could make a, you could mix up a drink three times a day and slam it down and get back to your programming and coding. <laughs> because because for some reason people don't like to eat i'm like wait a minute that's not my people anyway um <laughs> once you know once once you realize that food is um you know it's definitely fuel it's definitely to be enjoyed but you also get to a point where you you recognize that no matter how little food you eat at a meal you're still going to be okay there's going to be another meal around the corner and so i i started to look at people in, in, in humanity and Americans in particular, and we kind of go through this life thinking, what's the most amount of this food I can eat and not gain weight? <laughs> what's the biggest piece of cheesecake I can eat and not feel like crap after I've had it and not gain weight? What's, you know what I mean? It's like, I think a lot of people think in those terms or even worse, people go, go to the gym and they're like, I'm going to do 500 calories on the treadmill today because I want to have a big lunch. I want to deserve my big lunch. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, you're going to put yourself through all that struggling and suffering 45 minutes on the treadmill. Just so you can have a few more bites of something you probably shouldn't eat in the first place. Like how, how crazy is that? And so I took a, a kind of a weird thought experiment the other way. And I said, um, okay, instead of seeing how much I can get away with eating, because we all, have this tendency, again, it's human nature to see what we can get away with, right? How little work can I do and still get a paycheck? Uh, you know, how, um, whatever, there all, all these different kind of ways we play with our, with our minds. I love that. What, instead of thinking what's the most amount of food I can eat and not, not have it affect me negatively, what's the least amount of food I can eat, maintain muscle mass or build muscle mass, have all the energy I want, never get sick, and most importantly, not be hungry. And isn't that, it's like, as Tim Ferriss used to say, it's like the minimum effective dose of something. What's the minimum effective dose of food that I can have and still be satisfied? Because again, at the end of the day, my satisfaction, my joy, the pleasure I get from eating is an important part of my day. But if you look at the cheesecake um, example, you know, Cheesecake Factory gives you this giant slice that could feed a small village and you think, well, that's what they think is a, is a serving. So I guess it must be okay to eat the whole thing. Um, but the reality is you have that first bite and it is spectacular. It's a 10 out of 10. It does everything. It hits all, it checks off all the boxes. 
The second bite, yeah, it's, it's a nine. It's definitely a nine. You know, by the third or fourth bite, it's getting down to a seven or a six. And at what point do you, you say, okay, now, you know, we've established what I am. Now we're just haggling over price. I mean, it's like, um, at what point, at what point do you suggest that it's enough? Like I can push this plate of, of dessert away and I got all the experience, all the positive stuff out of it I needed. And I didn't go over the line and, and put myself in a misery where, you know, I'm, I'm for three minutes of gustatory pleasure, I'm experiencing five hours of sweats and not sleeping and high heart rate and all the other crap that might go with that. So that's, that's almost, that's like the major skill I want to teach people is to, to be confident enough in how they're eating and how they've established their metabolic flexibility, confident enough that they know that, that, that the worst thing, that like they can't even err on the side of not eating enough because it's, <laughs> I know people, and you do too, we know people who, who, who are fully keto or keto adapted and, you know, these guys, these people eat one meal a day and they're happy and fine doing that. Um, and I used to think, wow, one meal a day, you must be have to, have to really be mindful of how much you eat. And I'm thinking, you know, because you want to be sure you don't overeat. And they're like, yeah, we have to be mindful that we eat enough because, you know, we're just, we're not that hungry. And it's not like it's a bad, not that hungry. It's just that we're not hangry. We're not craving stuff. We're satisfied with a relatively smaller portion of food and, and it does the trick and we're, and we're, ready, willing, able to step away and, and just, you know, get on with the rest of our day. Okay. So we're going to call this officially chasing the cheesecake dragon, right? <laughs> but the, what I hear there and maybe what I'm inferring is this somehow not only relates to my health in the immediate and my, certainly my, my, my immediate pleasure and, and psychological health, but I think you're on to something around aging. Do you think there's a component? Because if this season's about aging and you're saying that, hey, we're making a whole bunch of oxidative eating distress errors, do you think this is a component to living to be 100 years old and, and doing it better? Absolutely. You know, I'm one of the, there's a group of four or five of us. Um, Ron Rosedale is one. Um, uh, Joe Mercola is one. I'm, I'm one who have said, uh, Michael Eads have said for the last 25 years, the less sugar you eat in a lifetime, the longer you'll live. So the more you can reduce your sugar intake, whether or not you're keto, it's just a, it's just kind of a basic fact because of the, because of this uh, reactive oxygen species, the oxidative damage that, that comes from that type of metabolism. Um, so Yes, by, by reducing your sugar, that's the major step I would tell anybody. That's, that's step one. Even if you never go keto, even if you never go paleo or primal, just cut back on your sugar because that's really what's killing so many people. Um, and then the next step is, is to understand that when you don't eat, uh, that's when all the good stuff is happening in the body. It's, it's, again, people can't quite understand this, but we, we eat to fill up the coal bins and be ready for, you know, what's going to, the, the, the surfeit, the dearth, the, the lack of food coming in the next hours, days, or weeks from an evolutionary historical perspective. But all the good stuff happens when we're not eating. All the repair mechanisms are triggered. All of that, that's when these, the gene expression happens where, you know, the genes that, that are um, uh, involved in fixing broken strands of DNA get upregulated. That's when the body starts to identify senescent cells or uh, damaged cells or damaged proteins. 
and literally consumes them and doesn't just get rid of them because they're, they're, they're bad for the health of the body, actually uses them for energy, consumes them, um, and that's one of the sources of calories when you fast for long periods of time. You're literally munching on dead, deficient, you know, uh, senescent cells that you don't need and are only causing you harm. But, but when you're engaged in a pattern where you're eating three, four, five meals a day, those cells, they're supported. They, 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 they stay around, they hang around and do more damage. So if you can, if you can fast once in a while, and that's where intermittent fasting comes in. I mean, we can talk about short-term fasting, which would be a compressed eating window where you eat maybe two meals a day in an eight hour window, and then you don't eat for the other 16 hours or longer fast where you go two, three, four days without eating um, and do some, according to much research, do some fairly significant repair during those periods with no real downside, with no real like, oh my God, well, I, you know, I, I fasted for three days and I lost all this muscle. And it's going to take me years to build it back. No, I fasted for three days. I repaired uh, some DNA. I, I got rid of some senescent, some damaged cells. Um, uh, I had more energy. Um, I built the metabolic, I rebuilt my metabolic flexibility. Uh, and, you know, now I'm ready to, to get back to a, a normal routine. So uh, this is sort of related to that, but one of the things I really wanted to ask you about today is oils. Um, I first started reading about how disgusting vegetable oil is on Mark's Daily Apple, actually. And then um, I learned way more about its impact on a cellular level by reading Kate Shanahan's book, Deep Nutrition. Um, obviously, everything you make at Primal Kitchen is vegetable oil free on purpose. And that's something that you've been focused on. But I was just wondering if you could speak to that whole oils thing a little bit. Yeah, I mean, uh, so as much as I would say that sugar is the great, you know, demon that has caused uh a lot of uh, stress and heartache for hundreds of millions of people, probably billions of people over the last uh, 50 years. Um, I think I think what we call industrial seed oils, uh, these these vegetable oils, uh, notably soybean, canola, uh, corn oil, um, are as bad or worse in many cases. They are insidious. They are highly processed. They're they're you know they're they're mostly polyunsaturated fats that are mostly omega-6 fats, which are, for the most part, pro-inflammatory. Um, we need some, but, but we tend to get 20 times as much as we need. Uh, they don't really combust that well. They get, they, they're not burned efficiently. They are uh, incorporated into cell membranes, and because they're not, they're not you know, these are, these are sort of damaged in the process of manufacture, uh, they're hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated. Uh, they affect how the cell membrane works and they affect the pliability of the membrane. They, they literally can be uh, implicated in um, damaged tissue, whether it's uh, the inability of that tissue to function at 100% or uh, admit certain nutrients into the cell uh, or even to the extent of causing premature um, hardening of uh, you know, skin like wrinkles or, 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 or arteries. Um, they are insidious, and so I, I think we are still um, years away from the general public recognizing how bad these industrial seed oils are for us. And, and, and remember, I mean, it wasn't, it, it was like 10 years ago when canola was the great, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the latest breakthrough in healthy oils, and it was embraced by the health food 
industry, uh, not the least among which was Whole Foods. Um, but now we know, we know, we know differently. It's not, it's not good for you. It's actually, I think, bad for you. And soybean oil is is as bad or worse. So, um, what does that mean for the average person who's shopping in the store? You, you got to look at the labels. You got to look at. I mean, I started Primal Kitchen um, largely on the strength of an episode where I walked into um, a supermarket and I picked up a bottle of Newman's Own, Paul Newman, my childhood hero, uh, <laughs> Cool Hand Luke, my favorite movie of all time, right? And it's, um, it's uh, extra virgin olive oil and vinegar dressing. And lo and behold, the, <laughs> the label says, you know, may contain soybean, corn oil, canola, and as, as the first ingredient, and then water. And then, uh, oh yes, it has some extra virgin olive oil somewhere down there, fourth or fifth on the list. And that was like, oh man, Paul, really? Um, <laughs> and that's when I realized that, you know, the public is being uh, duped into thinking, you know, things are healthier than they are, uh, partly because of marketing and partly because of the way People don't tend not to read labels. Uh, and that's what really got me started in Primal Kitchen. And so, as you know, we use avocado oil, which is a uh, deemed by many to be the healthiest of the oils. And by the way, these, all these things exist on a spectrum, right? Oils, oils are 100% um, fat. The difference is the breakdown of the fats, where the fats come from, whether they're saturated, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated fats. Uh, and so on that spectrum of oils, you can have... Uh, Avocado oil at the far end of the of the great best for you stuff, and extra virgin olive oil right there, right next to it. Um, and then you go, as you go down the line, you get you know some grapeseed oil and some and some other maybe high oleic sunflower oil. And then as you get further on down the line, you start to come to you know these these nasty um, industrial seed oils. Um, and the, the you know the best example is Crisco. I mean, Crisco was basically created. Uh, to lubricate engine parts, and then somebody had the great idea of like, oh well, we could we could probably use it in place of butter and for cooking and stuff like that too. Let's try it. So um, and the whole country, you know, my my parents grew up using Crisco. I mean, I my mother cooked with Crisco. There was a can of it on our, uh, you know, in our kitchen right next to our kitchen stove, and it was there for for whatever she was cooking at the time. So I, um, it's amazing how. How far we've come, but it's it's still amazing to me how far we have. We were my stepfather's grandma, who was like old school Swede, came to visit us when she when I was in high school, and she was going to make kolaches. She was from Wisconsin, and she opens the cabinet. And she's like, "Where's the lard?" And we were we were all products of the eighties, like you know, eating a rice we're cake like, and we're like, like diet ah, We were like, ah, yeah. "Lard, that's so bad for you." <laughs> and literally no and also I just took away that if I you know you said that these oils can harden I should stop using industrial seed ordinance to try to seed oils to try to harden my six pack I really appreciate that advice <laughs> well you know a lot of people are using our spray avocado oil for uh, as a body lotion before they go to bed at night you um <laughs> one of the things that I appreciate do you mind sharing your age with our audience I'm 66 okay and the reason that's that's germane to this conversation is you have a prodigious play attitude. You have always been playing. Um, I think anyone, if they weren't 
wise enough would have a hard time keeping up with you. You know, as we shift sometimes from just diet and we're talking about longevity and age, I think you really have nailed something in your own personal life, which is play. Can you you talk about that role? Because that, that's got to be a huge piece. And you even mentioned play earlier. Well, yeah. I, as, a, as an endurance athlete, and I spent uh, the better part of 25 years training hard for competition, even, even when I wasn't racing, uh, this is how bad that was. I, even when I, when I quit competing, I still trained hard and I coached, I coached elites, right? So I coached uh, a world-class triathlon team for a bunch of years and I would travel around the world with them to their races and I could still do their workouts with them, right? So I was, I was in that mindset of um, no pain, no gain for the longest time. When I finally let go of that and I finally realized that wearing my body down, um, I had an epiphany that literally brought tears to my eyes in a bad way. Um, I realized that my entire endurance career, all I'd been doing was managing discomfort. Uh, from the time in a race, and I, and I was in 200 endurance contests, the time the gun went off until the time I crossed the finish line, there was no point at that race when I, I could ever say, wow, this is fun. I'm having a blast. You know, it was always about, oh, I'm, I'm in the zone. I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not dying yet. Um, you know, I'm, I'm ahead of these guys, but those guys are in front of me. It was always about managing discomfort. And, and even when you lead a race, you know, now you're running in the front. Now it's like, holy shit, those guys are going to catch me. I better you know, pick up the pace. <laughs> and the training was the same way. Yes, there would be moments when I'd, I'd take a team off the road. And we used to, don't, don't think ill of me, but I used to take like six guys up in the hills behind um, Santa Monica. And we would run in Speedos and, uh, and <laughs> running just running shoes. And we would have like 20-mile runs where we couldn't say a word to each other. We just, you know, we... We could grunt, we could use elbows, but there was, it was like no communication. You just, you're, you're in the moment. Um, those were kind of cool. Those were meditative and zone-like, but that was still wasn't really, I guess you could say they were playful, but I realized that at, there was a point at which I'm like, I'm doing all this. If I want to stay fit, I'm going to lose my mind if all I do is manage pain. So I want, I want to only have fun for the most part when I'm, when I'm moving, when I'm doing uh, uh, exceptional efforts, and so I, I choose to stand up paddle. I love it. I went out yesterday in the ocean here. I did a hard hour. And the whole time, I'm just having fun. I'm looking at the, you know, look back at the shore. I'm looking at the boats out there. I'm, I'm navigating the waves. It was pretty choppy. I'm looking down and seeing some fish. The whole time I'm out there, I'm like, I'm in the zone and having fun. And I'm never thinking, oh, my God, when's it going to be over, right? Uh, like I used to when I was a runner. Um, I play ultimate frisbee. It's one of my favorite things to do, and I play a game with twenty-somethings uh, down the street. And these are some of the, literally, some of the best in the world. Some of these guys just came back last week from the Pan Am Championships, and one of the one of the teams, one of the, one of the girls that shows up in our game, she was on the gold medal winning team for the entire Pan Am conference. So it's a great bunch of players, and um, I have an awesome time. And again, for two hours, I'm out there, totally involved in the moment. At no point going, oh, shit, I hope it's over soon. I can't wait to go home. It's like, ah, oh, dang, you know, it's, it's, they're going to turn the lights off, you know, at 10 o'clock, and I could play for another half hour. That's, what I, that's how I want to really look at my, my pursuits now. Um, I'm a snowboarder. I love powder. Um, it's a fun pursuit. Again, you just, you know, you, you're out there and you're having fun. You're not really thinking about the work, even though it's a great workout. I have a fat bike, uh, you know, the four-and-a-half-inch-wide uh, inflate, low inflated tires that I go up and down the beach uh, in Miami. There's always a good view here, wink, wink. 
And, um, you know, it's it, and, and the weather's great. So I'm always, I started doing e-foiling, you know, the electric foil uh, surfboard, uh, hydrofoil, where you fly above the water. So I'm just, I'm like looking at ways to play now. I'm not interested in, in struggling and suffering anymore. When I do go to the gym, it's really only contemplated to keep me from getting injured when I'm doing the, the fun thing. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things that is a hallmark through all of those things is balance. You are engaged in a lot of pursuits where there's a lot of proprioceptive input and there's a lot of balance. And one of the things that we have sold, you know, people is that like, get on this bike, do this machine that will take care of your heart and you'll be insulin sensitive. And yet the number one reason most of us end up in nursing homes is a fall. We fracture something and then our health declines. I mean, that's the number one predictor of death past 70 is a fall. You know, even, you know, Jimmy Carter was hospitalized because of his falls recently. You know, do you, are you conscious that, you know, these are skills developed in play? Are you aware? Because we see that this loss of balance and, and security, my mother-in-law was hiking up in Tahoe and she comes to our gym. They do a lot of rolling and balance and play work. And they were going to go through this old train tunnel. And her friend said, no, I'll fall. I'm not going to go in there. And, And Janet, who was, you know, every bit of 75 was like, what's wrong with you? You know, and you know, she, she had maintained this ability. Her friend knew that, you know, that was over her limit. Do you think we're, we're getting some exercising wrong in terms of what we're selling to people and telling people they need to do? Absolutely. I, I agree. I, I think um, I made, you know, I've made a comment over the years that nobody really dies of old age. Um, you die of organ failure where one organ, your weakest link, gives out. And the, the typical scenario is just as you explained, somebody who is in their 60s, 70s uh, real, thinks that they're too old to exercise and they're too old to go do Pilates or too old to, to even attempt to get on a uh, slack line. Uh, and they just, you know, they sort of let their muscles atrophy. So when the muscles atrophy, uh, they lose their, their uh, glucose control, as you, as you mentioned, they lose their metabolic flexibility, they lose their mobility, uh, they lose, and then because they are not training hard, they um, the muscles go, are basically atrophying, and the muscles go, "Hey, we, we don't need to, you know, we don't need to to be strong. Why waste precious resources remaining strong and, and pliable when this clown's not going to get out of the chair?" Meanwhile, all of the organs—the heart, the lungs, the liver—they back off because the heart is a demand organ that just only works based on. The amount of uh, uh, that whatever is asked of it by the muscles. So you decide to go out and do a sprint workout. The muscles are, are asking the heart to pump faster and harder and more forcefully to drive um, oxygen and fuel to the muscles. Well, if you don't do those sprints anymore, the heart kind of goes, "Hey, I don't need to beat that forcefully. I don't need to waste my precious resources." And so you lose you lose capacity. You lose cardiac capacity. Same with the lungs. If you're not breathing deeply and not going out and and doing intensity, any kind of intense work, or even any kind of cardio work, the lungs go, hey, we can, you know, we can just breathe a little bit. We can lose some of our vital capacity. It's not going to cost anything because we're never called into play anymore. Same with the liver. Same. So now, uh, and then if you don't work on balance, which is, a, as you said, a critical component for people over 40, I think, um, the scenario is typically you wake up in the middle of the night to t- take a leak, you trip over the cat, you break a hip, you go to the hospital with a broken hip, you're lying in bed there, of course you're in a hospital where you get pneumonia because that's what they do in hospitals. And because your lungs aren't 
strong enough to force out the sputum and cough. Um, the, the, the phlegm builds up and then your heart, because of the, the um, infection and everything else going on, the heart can't keep up with it. And you die of congestive heart failure. You die of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. You, it's, you literally succumb to the weakest link because you didn't think in terms of maintaining muscle mass. Lean muscle is what drives life. And if, if you're somebody who's thinking about, well, what are the things I need to do to, you know, to achieve longevity and to be healthy and to, and to be mobile and cognitive when I'm in my 80s or 90s or 100s, uh, going to the gym is definitely one of them or, or finding an activity, doesn't have to be going to the gym, but, but doing some form of resistance exercise uh, that causes you, forces you to have to work a little bit harder than you're used to and is a little, a, a little uncomfortable, but I say try to make it fun. Like I say, that's why I'm, again, at 66, I'm the oldest guy on my, on my Frisbee pitch playing Frisbee. Um, but I'm planning on doing it until I'm, you know, until I can't. Let's just put it that way. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Sorry, right. I'm, sorry. Yeah. I'm, run, I'm running on at the mouth here. No, you're well, not. Well, I love all. the idea of like, you're like, yeah, come with a little, bu- little bike ride on the beach in my fat cruiser. Like, meanwhile, heart rate pegged, trying not to fall over in your face in the deep sand. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a sneaky, sneaky mark. Yeah, and I'm just so glad you said that about the resistance training, too, because that's something that I notice among our cohort of, you know, Kelly and I are 46 years old. We notice that, you know, people are all about, like, going for a long run or doing, you know, uh, you know their, their cardio workout. But it, it is the, the resistance piece seems to be a big hole for a lot of people and not something they think is important. Well, and the balance piece. And, you know, I, I started doing uh, slackline about 10 years ago, and um, I, I don't have one here and I miss it. Um, but you know, if I, if I see one in the park, I hop on for a little bit. Yeah, we've, we've got a slack line in our side yard, and I spend a lot of time on the barbecue slack line combo. People don't know about that couplet, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, if you can drink a beer and, and slack line at the same time, then that's uh, I like beer. I <laughs> you're, winning, you're winning at life. Uh, Mark, we could probably ask you a thousand more questions. It's so fun to talk to you, but am, um, so that we can start to wrap this up, am I correct that you are writing a new book? And if so, what is it? Yeah, yeah um, it's, it's called Keto for Life. And it is a book on longevity, and it is—it's uh, out in December, uh, end of December. Um, there'll be pre-order uh, very soon, probably by the time this is up. Um, It's—it's it's, uh, based on the four pillars that I identify for uh, that you kind of—you want to build resistance, you want to actually reacquire uh, resilience is the, is the term I use. Uh, but metabolic flexibility, for sure, one of those. Um, uh, movement and physical activity, another pillar. Mental flexibility, and that's where we talk about the playful mind and, and being able to pivot and being able to with, withstand, um, you know, events that would otherwise might be, um, you know, cause you to lose lose momentum in your life. And then rest and recovery, which is grossly overlooked by so many people. Um, I do not apologize for my eight and a half to nine hours of sleep every night. Um, I, I would not brag if I was trying to get by on four or five hours. Make no sense at all. Um, yeah, and it's just it's a it's a fun book. It really kind of looks at how we can set ourselves up to live a longer, happier, healthier life um, with the least amount of pain, suffering, sacrifice, and discipline. Uh, you know, you're speaking my language. I mean, I, one of the fun things about you know. I, Juliet look can look at you and and see like mm, handsome guy fun good on the beach, but 
but I have a view of what my life looks like. You know, Laird is exactly 10 years older than I am, and you're exactly 10 years older than Laird. And I got to say, my only negative about having you in my life is that you guys set the benchmarks and the goalposts so high, so far, <laughs> that I'm like, oh my God, I have a lot of work to do between now and 55 and now and 66. And I really feel like that has been one of the big shifts in my, my mind is that I'm now playing a little bit different game. I'm playing to be 100 years old and having the capacities that I do now when I'm 100. Well, you know, Laird's a great friend, um, awesome guy, and, and Laird spends his life playing. And it might not look like it to some people because of the, the things he chooses to call play, but, but that guy loves to play. And, and he's, and, and I, so I would suggest to you, and I think you got that from this conversation, you're on your way. I mean, you, you're you're right in the groove, and you know don't 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 ask for those ten years to accelerate because they're going to happen on their own, right? It'll, it'll but if you keep if you keep doing what you're doing, and if you consider um, the, the the kind of the way you're eating, uh, the way you live your life as a human being, uh, the types of exercise you're choosing, look, mobility is is uh, is huge. There's basically two things that define quality of life when you get older one is access to thoughts memory because if without that you know that's that's a huge epidemic with with alzheimer's and dementia so you have to work on that and then actual mobility of the, the ability to go places and do things and have fun and experience life you don't want to be bedridden you don't want to be you know in a wheelchair or, or, or a walker you want to be able to move to something and 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 move along with something and so those two things um they they really are the essential benefits of play you know if you're having fun your brain is your brain is engaged in in playful uh witty whether it's witty banter or whether it's doing um you know learning a new uh sport or learning music or something you're as long as you're using your brain and you're and, and you've got this playful aspect of your life then then it's not drudgery and it's something you look forward to and it just it's just part of your life and, that, and that's the best part of it it's just it's not added, it's not additional, like I have my life and then I have my workouts, you know? No, it's your life and it's a good part of it. Man, I appreciate it. Uh, obviously, Mark Staley Apple's incredible resource. All of your primal books, the writing we'll link to. Where can people, if they're, if you th is Mark Staley Apple the best place to find you? Where, where should we, people, because this is going to really resonate with so many people we know. What's the best way to sort of learn more? Yeah, find you, follow you. Yeah, yeah. So Mark Staley Apple uh, is the blog, and uh, probably, probably four thousand archived articles on that. So good luck combing through that. Um, if you don't want to, if you don't want to comb through that, uh, the Primal Blueprint, my seminal first book, uh, still uh, probably the best thing I've ever written in terms of um, comprehensive understanding of how the human body works. Agreed. Um, got the Keto Reset Diet. Uh, which was my most recent New York Times bestseller, and then uh, Keto for Life. So lots of choices, um, and uh, you know, and then you can want to follow me on Instagram. It's Mark Sisson Primal. Um, and there you have it. Man, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, I'll be in Miami before too long, and uh, I can't wait to go go efoiling with you. Yeah, no, we'll do it for sure. Thank you so much, Mark. It's such a pleasure. Likewise. Take care, guys. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. 
and be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. The Ready State is the new home of MobilityWAD, where we've assembled the most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. At its core, our message has always focused on helping you be more ready. Ready for your next race? Ready for your next workout? Ready to keep up with your kids? Pretty much ready for anything life throws your way. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You Kelly Starrett is the New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be happier and healthier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is the co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and The Ready State, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it. You better stop it.